this is Craig, and today's episode is about rosé, the fun and unrelenting upward trajectory of rosé wine. The episode you're listening to is about rosé, which means it's about what is one of the hottest, if not the hottest, trends in wine. If you're already a big fan of rosé, then you and I already have a lot in common with millions of other people. If you're not, well, join us for a fun time. The rosé party's in full swing. To my mind, it's a ridiculously good thing that rosé is trending now, because as a wine, rosé deserves its place in the sun. Rosé wine, today's trendy summer superstar, the it wine of the party scene, is no overnight sensation. Rosé has been around for a long time, and high-quality, quote, serious rosé has always had great respect in many wine markets. But in North America, its reputation has been a bit spotty because of the sweet blush wine versions of the 90s. The good news is that those forgettable days are past, and Rosé is rightfully a celebrity among wines again. And it really does have sort of a celebrity feel about it. Rosé has that trending, vivacious, attractive, young, fresh, and nuanced aura about it that you could associate with sexy current stars like Emma Stone or Rihanna or you know Gigi Hadid. But it, it's, it's not a bad comparison, but Rosé also carries this impressive pedigree and a stature that speaks of sophistication like Michelle Pfeiffer or Salma Hayek or Helen Mirren, a little more mature but still so vibrant and compelling and sexy. In this episode, we'll talk about why Rosé is so incredible, where it comes from, how it's made, what sets it apart from red wines and white wines, and also some of the great buys to look for in rosé wine. There is something intriguing and captivating about this wine that is both ultra-hip and also the product of long, long breeding. The rosé conundrum. We can bring a bottle or two to a summer party and we're at the leading edge of style, yet rosé is so long in the tooth and has been around as long as wine itself. Why is it so cool and so ancient at the same time? Well, number one, rosé is ancient because it has been around as long as wine has been made. It's generally understood that in the early days of making wine from red grapes, and we're talking, you know, five or 6,000 years ago, the rudimentary technology available wouldn't have allowed our ancestral winemakers to conduct a long fermentation in contact with the red grape skins to extract all that color and, and still have a nice, easy-to-drink product. They didn't have enough control of the yeast fermentation and spoilage organisms that, in order to keep the skin, the wine in contact with the skin for an extended period of time. And they would maybe from time to time have made deeper, more darkly colored red wines, but they would have found that those wines were more prone to spoilage. And so they would tend to avoid that and they would go towards a nice foot-trodden, light-colored wine, get that into the market, into their bellies as quickly and safely as possible. So they would move more commonly move you know, quickly through the crushing and the separation of skins and straight into fermentation. It would have been much more reliable, and they would have ended up with a, with a lighter colored wine. Now, rosé is cool, of course, because there's a combination of factors in its favor, particularly the clever marketing that's going on around it. But, but more than that, you know, rosé just has a natural zest to it. And the public has an increasing love for wines that are lively and fun and fresh and fruity. And rosé is definitely fun and fresh, as opposed to think about, you know, red wines are sort of serious and complex and you have to think about them and contemplate them. In other words, rosé is just easy to drink and people are spreading the news in a big way. 
Rosé, together I would argue with sparkling, is the wine segment of the moment, wine that is commanding the best space on the wine store shelves and splashing itself all over social media. This is a party that everybody wants to go to in the summer, myself included. I know my own life would be less fulfilled if there wasn't rosé during the summertime. Let's talk a bit about where rosé comes from and how it's made. Rosé has long had a special place in the wine world, and rosé is as old as wine itself. It has wonderful roots in many, many regions, but let's drive straight to rosé's wildly beating French heart. The rosé that has been taking the world by storm, the wine that some call summer water, this bright, fresh rosé of the moment, really starts with Provence in the south of France. Among rosé wine-producing regions, Provence is king. It's considered the birthplace of rosé and remains the style setter for rosé wines to this day. The history of rosé is long. Like any good true story, it's deeply bound up with the events that shaped the place itself. Rosé wine is a protagonist in the long story of Provence, changing with the times but also creating a fantastic thread of consistency that helps define the personality of the entire region and its people. The Provençal were already widely known and revered for their rosé wines during the time of the Roman Empire. In fact, the people of what is now modern-day Provence, the Massilians, as historians call them, were well-versed in making, marketing, and shipping wine, and a thriving international trade in rosé wines was occurring long before the arrival of the Roman Empire. Greek maritime traders were regularly calling at the Massilian Mediterranean port starting from the 7th century BC, and keep in mind that the Greeks are universally credited with spreading wine technology and wine trade throughout the Mediterranean. This exposure to Greek technology and trading capability gave the Massilians a chance to expand their own wine industry, both in terms of volume and reputation. And when the Romans conquered the place and subsumed it into the empire in the 2nd century BC, they took the promotion of wine production and the export of rosé to a whole new level. The Roman conquest was never going to be particularly easy on the local population, but in comparison to other conquered regions in the vicinity, Massilia got off pretty easy. Note that there's a bit more uh, of, a, of the history of the Romans in the region in the postscript to this podcast if you're interested in staying on at the end. Um, but in the decades leading up to the actual push into the area by the Roman army, there'd been a history of cordial relations between the Massilians and the Romans. So there was a relative minimum of bloodshed when, when, the, when the Romans marched in. Most importantly for the Massilians, though, commerce continued and the wine trade thrived in Provence, regardless of the endless bloody Roman experiment in community building that was going on among the tribes further north as the Romans moved on. As the Romans were wont to do, their administrative legions were building the bulwarks of a useful economy in the newly dominated territories while their you know, other military legions relentlessly went on and subjugated the neighboring tribes. So the Romans were well motivated to take an active role in building the Massilian slash Provence uh, wine market and encouraging production for local consumption and for export. A big part of successful empire building for the Romans was the development of infrastructure and economic prosperity for the conquered peoples. And Provence, the, Massil the Massilians, had a product that could be easily exploited, their already famous rosé wine. Rosé was therefore shipped in greater and greater quantities to Rome and to other parts of the empire. Uh, of course, the Romans also tried the reciprocal trade, trying to move red wine from Rome into Massilia. But the Massilians, the Provençal, weren't having much of it. The people 
were not going to shift away from their rosé very easily. They loved, and to this very day, they continue to love their rosé. Anyway, after the demise of the Roman Empire and over time, other invaders came and went and brought new grape varieties, and, and that, those had tremendous benefits to local winemaking. The wine industry evolved and changed over time, sometimes progressing, sometimes regressing. Um, you know, there was the there were the Dark Ages, and during the Middle Ages, the monastic orders assumed a central role in producing wine and preserving wine growing and wine making knowledge. Without those early monks, much would have been lost. But on through the centuries, the Provençal nurtured their passion for rosé and they honed their knowledge of the grapes and the terroir and the techniques that made the best wine. Fast forward to today and wine drinking in Provence remains largely about rosé. 90% of the wine produced in Provence is rosé. And on the Mediterranean beaches and in the seaside cafes in the pretty country villages, rosé is drunk joyously and liberally from afternoon to night. It is as deep in the culture of Provence as Bridget Bardot and fresh seafood lunches. It is a huge point of pride for the locals and imbues the whole personality of the social world with a pink tinge. That fun, infectious personality of rosé wine has really helped Provence conquer the rosé wine world. But rosé still has some barriers to break down in its upward trajectory. Outside of France and Spain and Italy, particularly in the New World, rosé has had some awkwardness to overcome. Rosé has been something of a middle child of the wine colors. It's not as seen as being as serious or complex or you know philosophical and conversational as, as its sister red wine, nor is it as seen as always as graceful and nuanced as pretty as, as white wine. It has a reputation as a bit of a partier. But that's not to say that serious, in quotes, rosé hasn't had a large degree of popularity in the past. In Europe, it's always been a staple. Uh, it, but in international markets, it's had to play catch-up. And it's doing so with gusto. In France, for example, rosé wine is already more popular than white. That's kind of astonishing. In the, in the U.S., rosé accounts for only about 2% of wine consumption, but it's the fastest-growing segment, increasing about 60% per year. Canadian statistics are quite similar, growing, growing rapidly. So there's a real party atmosphere around rosé and lots of trendy hype. Rosé, more than any other wine, again, except maybe with sparkling, inspires groupies and Instagram pictures and lots of social media. This is a spirit of shared discovery of something really cool that has bubbled up around rosé. And for a lot of good reasons, it's a summer drink and it's just a lot of fun to pour around the table. It's incredibly photogenic and it shares so well on social media. It just looks delicious and chic. Um, for example, check out the Instagram uh, hashtag rosé all day. Very popular and very cool. Um, it's beautiful to drink and particularly in the Provence-style light versions, is so quaffable as to be dangerous. Also, the price point isn't very nice. So, I mean, it's, it's, you get a great wine with rosé for a great price. So it pairs well with foods, fun foods like tapas and pizza or barbecue. It's fun to just quaff it. Rosé really shines, though, with summer meals outdoors. To me, a restaurant with a patio that has a poor selection of rosé on the menu is just a very sad and disappointing thing. With careful buying, you you can also, you know, you can get a lot of quality for your wine drinking dollar. These really are good buys, and that's one of the reasons we like it so much here at the Wine Beat. Rosé also deserves some respect for the challenges presented to the winemakers in making a very good wine. 
It's a demanding technical challenge to the winemaker to tease out the ephemeral, subtle attributes that mark good rosé. For the best rosé wines, there's a moment in the pressing or maceration of the grapes that just has to be snatched right on time to get the color, texture, and the perfume right. In the wrong hands, rosé is not a beautiful butterfly, but a clumsy, lumbering pink thing. Let's review the two main ways that rosé can be made. We'll talk a little bit about winemakers' tricks to capture rosé poetry. But let's get a bit of the basics out in the open. First, rosé wine comes from red grapes. This is important to keep in mind. Dark-colored grapes have color only in the skin. The juice in the pulp is essentially clear. So if you press a red grape, you'll have a clear juice such as is used to make white wine, very much similar to what you'd have if you press white grapes. To achieve an off-white pink color, you need to somehow be taking some of the red color from the skins. How you do that and what degree you tease out that reddish hue is a big part of the challenge. Part of the delicate dance here is that it's not only the color that you extract when you start pressing the grape skins and letting some of that time with the skins occur to extract the color. You also begin to tease out fruit characters, both flavors and aromas, as well as the astringent mouth dry, you know, that mouth drying feeling from the phenolic compounds. Getting the balance of the fruity floral aromas, the phenolic grip, uh, but the mouth watering acidity, which is so important, getting that correct is not easy. So Coming back to the two main methods of creating rosé-colored juice for, for fermentation into rosé wine, number one, the first we can describe is a one which you have a very abbreviated skin contact on the pressing or the crushing. It's probably the most popular method for making rosé, especially for making lighter-style rosés. I think we can legitimately call them Provence-style since the winemakers Provence can claim you know, that those light, bright rosés are originally their creation. So picture the red grapes being delivered in large bins to the winery, transferred to a large press, and then the grapes being gently pressed to release the juice. In white wine production, the juice is taken directly to a tank for settling and later fermentation, a typical white wine process. But in rosé wine production, the winemaker allows the grapes to spend a little bit more time in the press, like a prolonged and very gentle pressing, to allow the components from the skins to permeate the juice to that desired degree that the winemaker is looking for. With great skill, the winemaker captures that perfect color, fruit flavor, delicate perfumey aroma, and the other elements for a wonderful rosé. There are variations on this method that allow for you know, more time, more maceration for the skins to remain in contact and extract more color and flavor, but we can, you know, we can assume this is a subset of the, quote, pressing slash crushing method of, of uh, extracting rosé color. The other method that we should mention, of course, is the sagné method. Uh, sagné meaning coming from the French word for blood, or meaning to bleed. And it, so it's the bleeding of pink juice from crushed grapes. This method is going to sound a lot like the first one we just talked about, um, so we'll try to zero in on the difference. In the sagné method, uh, some of the lightly tinted juice from a larger batch of red wine is bled off. So you've got a large batch uh, of, uh, of red grapes. There's maceration of those grapes going on to, to where, where the color is starting to you know, extract into the juice. And the winemaker bleeds off some of this juice to form a rosé before it 
you know, while it's still at that perfect pink color and with all the elements at the right level that the, the winemaker's looking for. This leaves a more intense red wine behind, and in some cases it, it is used for that purpose. It helps the winemaker create a more concentrated red base wine. In Provence, it's not usually the case that the winemaker is trying to make a rosé while intensifying a separate red wine product. But it is used in many regions, and um, you know the process can really make sense, uh, both for making great rosé, but also for to help a winemaker make a more concentrated red. Method number three we have to mention is blending of red and white juices or red and white wines together. This method needs to be mentioned because, you know, not only because wine drinkers often assume this is how rosé is made, but also because it is, it is in fact a method that is used. But it, it generally belongs in the bad winemaking bucket. That's not to say that some good rosé wines aren't made this way. In Champagne, rosé, there are rosé uh, sparkling wines made in Champagne this way, but we should generally ascribe this to bad winemaking and, and it's not you're not going to show up in the quality rosés that you will typically drink. Okay, how much should we obsess about the difference between uh, method number one and number two? Not really much uh, unless you want to get into the techie details of winemaking. This, this short description is really just to give you the idea of how you make this wonderful product and how you delicately tease out the, the, uh, the characteristics that you're looking for. As rosé wine's popularity has grown, winemakers in essentially every winemaking region have thrown themselves at the challenge of making an elegant rosé. Among winemakers, it's definitely one of the products of the moment. It's worth keeping in mind that there are some very old and respected rosé-producing regions which have unique styles and tremendous history and pedigree. Not far from Provence in the Rhone region is Tavel. Uh, it's an appellation which is famous for more robust and lovely age-worthy rosé wines. Bordeaux produces some beautiful dry and medium weight rosés of high quality. Spain produces some remarkable dry, crisp, and lively rosé wines, or rosado as they are called, uh, usually made with Grenache, Garnacha grapes. Portugal, uh, which has had an unfortunate reputation for producing sweet and annoying rosé wines as a result of the Matus brand, as with everything Portugal wine these days, the rosés, or rosados as they call them, uh, hitting the market are really playing well to current market tastes. Look out for those dry, vervy Portuguese rosados with great quality at a great price point. Italy also has a long tradition of rosé and produces a vast number of great rosés in different styles from different grape varieties and from all parts of the country. That's a signature of Italy. There's so many grape varieties and there's so many regions. Uh, and, you know, it applies to rosé as well. Italian rosés, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but they tend to be lighter when made in the cooler northern regions and more hardy when they come from the south. A good example of a more hardy uh, Italian rosé is Cerasuolo d'Abruzzo. Uh, this is a lovely... Cerasuolo means uh, cherry-flavored, and that's a pretty good uh, name for uh, Cerasuolo d'Abruzzo. Uh, it's a rich... Uh, very uh, lovely red-colored rosé, beautiful stuff. Here in British Columbia, where I live, there are a number of really excellent dry rosés. The Okanagan Valley, as you'll hear me say many times in this podcast series, has a phenomenal cap capacity for producing wines with a perfect balance of fruit and acidity, you know, which is exactly the enchantment that you're looking for in, in rosé wines. So after sort of that 
touching on regions outside of Provence. I want to come back to Provence just briefly because I there are appellations in Provence which are worth mentioning. Um, you know, for more information on this, you can go to www.ProvenceWineUSA.com. It's a good website with lots of information on Provence wines, uh, Provence uh, appellations, and, uh, you know, some recipes and food pairing, that sort of stuff. But lots of good information on Provence Rosé on that website. There are three main appellations or appellation d'origine contrôlée in Provence. Uh, first is Côte de Provence. Uh, the second is Coteau d'Aix on Provence, and the third is Coteau Varois on Provence. Within the Côte de Provence appellation, it's worth noting that there are four sub-appellations. I won't mention the names here, but each of these appellation sub-appellations have their own unique combination of soil, geographical features, and microclimates and terroir. The interplay of the Mediterranean Sea, the mountains, uh, the famously fierce cold Mistral wind from the north, the propensity for hot summers, all influence the character of the different rosé wines, and each region has its own characteristics. But they all produce thrilling, bright rosé wines. I'll leave it to you to taste through the different appellations. There's also a short selection of Provence rosés mentioned later in the podcast, and then you can go to the website, uh, winebeatpod.com, to see some of the notes that we've made on uh, rosé wines, including Provence wines there. Okay, let's have a quick chat about the grapes used in rosé. I think it's important to have a quick chat about that. Rosé, like red, benefits from the fact that it can be made with just about any variety of red grape. To be sure, there are traditional grapes that are your favorites in certain regions. In Provence, it's Grenache, Cinso, Syrah, depending on the region. In Spain, particularly in the famous Navarra region, it's largely Grenache and Tempranillo. In Italy, the grapes used depend on the region and range from Pinot Grigio in the north to Sangiovese and Montepulciano in Tuscany. In the south of Italy, big varieties like uh, Aglianico, which is a big red grape, uh, makes big, big, making big red wines, gives a richer rosé. In the U.S., Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, and other varieties are used. Likewise, in Canada, you'll find rosé of Pinot Noir, uh, Gamay Noir, Cabernet Franc, other varieties. The key takeaway here is that just about any red grape variety can be used depending on the unique terroir of the vineyard and each will contribute to the style of rosé that is made. Buying rosé can be a bit tricky given the large and the growing number of rosé wines on the shelves and not all of them are good. It pays to do a bit of research because quality varies as it does with any other wine. There are wine recommendations below for later on in this podcast, as I mentioned. Or you can go to the show notes for this episode on our website at uh, winebeatpod.com, W-I-N-E-B-E-A-T-P-O-D.com. And also in the tasting room, there's notes on uh, rosés, uh, quite a large selection of rosés. For the purpose of this podcast, I've limited the review to Provence-style light rosés, but I have mentioned some special, more robust rosés as well, so... Mostly we're talking about Provence, uh, but but I, I do want to uh, give a shout out to some of those lovely, richer rosés like Tavel and uh, the Cherosuolo d'Abruzzo that I mentioned, etc. Um, here's a tip, though, when you're buying rosé, especially if you're looking for this light, fresh, bright style rosés, Provence-style rosés, you should always drink them in the current vintage year. Light 
style rosé is so delicate that it'll start to lose its character after about a year. It's because of that short pressing and maceration time we talked about, you know, because the winemaker is really trying to limit the phenolic compounds that are extracted, the wines won't have the same aging capability. So keep in mind for these light, bright, fresh rosés, Provence-style rosés, that rosé will typically be released in spring after the harvest of the previous year. So if in the summer of 2018, you should try to buy 2017 rosés. In the summer of 2019, stick to the vintage year 2018, etc., etc. But, you know, it's important to note that for more robust wines like Tavelle, a few years bottle age is a good thing. I'd also say that if you're going out to buy a rosé and you want this Provence style, you're pretty safe to buy a, a rosé the, the, from Provence. The quality there is, is fairly consistent. I do want to recommend to you, though, that you try the rosés from your local region, try rosés from different places, because uh, there are some wonderful, wonderful products from different different places. Okay. Recommendations for your consideration. I'm going to hit on only a few, and I'll do this very quickly, but all of these, uh, unless I mention uh, otherwise, are 2017 vintage. The Palm by Whispering Angel, the from the makers of the iconic uh, Wh uh, Whispering Angel and Rock Angel. The Palm is a new product at a really nice price point, great, great quality. Um, so they've taken all their learnings from those I, those bigger name, more expensive wines and put them into the palm. There's a nice uh, rosé called L'Oratoire Saint-Andrieu. It's from the Coteau Varois en Provence. It's a bit more expensive, but very, very, very good for the, for the, for the price point. Um, there's some other lovely ones, Chateau Minuti M de Minuti, Chateau Rimoresque R de Rimoresque uh, are very nice. Uh, L'Ostal. L apostrophe O S T A L L'Ostal from Famille Caz uh, is 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 a is a, a really nice rosé for the price point um, about fifteen dollars Canadian whatever ten or twelve bucks U S really fantastic stuff um, I do want to mention Domaine de la Mordorie La Dame Russe from Tavel. Uh, you want to be looking for an older vintage. I think 2015 might be the current vintage on the shelves, but that's a lovely Tavel-style rosé. From British Columbia, look for rosés from Quail's Gate, number one. Their rosé is always excellent, and 2017, I think it's the hands-down winner, particularly at the price point. It's an awesome rosé. Uh, Tantalus makes a good Pinot Noir rosé. The Meyer family uh, makes a good Pinot Noir rosé. Uh, from the U.S., I like Three Otters, Pinot Noir Rosé from Oregon. I'm going to mention a couple of Greek rosés because I was just blown away by these, especially La Tour Melas Idyll, spelled I-D-Y-L-L-E. You may not be able to find this wine here in North America, I'm not sure, but uh, La Tour Melas makes just a beautiful, beautiful, delicate Provence-style rosé, as does Costas Lazaridi with his Merlot rosé 2017, almost like a white wine, it's so light, but with a seafood taverna meal, wow, fantastic. Um, okay, with all of that, it's time to wrap up this episode. I hope you liked the whirlwind tour of rosé wine. As mentioned before, go to winebeatpod.com for more information on rosé in the show notes and in the tasting room. Please subscribe to this podcast. Uh, a podcast without subscribers is like a summer without rosé. Desperately 
look forward to having you subscribe to the podcast. And I desperately look forward to you sending me some emails with your comments. Uh, you can email me at winebeatpod at gmail.com. That's winebeatpod at gmail.com with any comments, feedback, or input. Love to chat. Let me know what you're drinking in rosé or any other wine. I'd love to hear what rosés you're, you're finding, and, and, uh, and, and, and I'd love for you to share that with the group. Drink great wine this week. Until next time, this is Craig at The Wine Beat. If you're into a bit more of the Roman-era history of Provence, here are a few additional words and thoughts on that subject. The Roman conquest wasn't always easy. Although the Massilians had been closely allied with the Romans for some time, perhaps too closely allied, and perhaps were able to adjust to their new subjugated relationship, the Gauls from further north were inclined to try to push the Romans out of Provence and fight it out. And so the Massilians kind of got caught in the squeeze. Which meant, though, that the Gauls eventually faced the full wrath of the Roman legions. The Romans weren't going to have anybody pushing back. And imagine this if you're a Gaulish warrior in sandals with a knife and a leather shield. The Romans bring armored war elephants carrying Roman archers. Unsurprisingly, the Gauls lost that battle, but the Gauls were no shrinking violets, and they came back for more and more bloody battles with the Romans. They were a really tough enemy, and there were these were not small armies. Records suggest casualties in the tens and hundreds of thousands in a single set of battles. And it went on for a long time. The decades-long war with the Gauls seesawed back and forth. The Gauls were fearsome. The Romans, though, were disciplined, bloody, and persistent. And ultimately, of course, the Romans pushed their conquest through all the Gaulish territory and onward to England. Julius Caesar ultimately was the general credited with defeating the Gauls. Did he drink rosé during his campaigns? He once said, Wine has a tendency to enervate the mind of men and make them less brave in battle. I checked the meaning of the word enervate, and it means to drain or weaken or make feeble. So maybe rosé wasn't exactly a battlefield drink. Too bad, in a way, because it would make good Instagram, you know, centurions drinking rosé. On the other hand, Julius Caesar may have preferred beer, since he called beer a high and mighty liquor. Well, regardless, I like to think he drank rosé from time to time in, in a golden chalice engraved with images of great battles while he was camped in Provence with his legions and was toasting fallen comrades with his generals after a hard day of combat. There's also a cool story here about how the Romans first learned to use oak barrels for wine storage and transport based on the use of oaken beer barrels by the Gauls. So the Gauls were using oak barrels for beer. This is one of the most fundamental developments in wine technology and wine trade. So the fact that the Romans took this technology, applied it to wine, and then went on um, and spread the use of the oak barrel for wine storage and transportation is a big impact that the Roman Empire had on wine culture and commerce. We'll come back to that in a, in a dedicated episode on Roman, Rome and, and its history. On a completely unrelated topic, 
I just realized I forgot to include a food suggestion with this episode. So here it is. Imagine you've come home from work on a summer day. You've stopped to pick up a cold bottle of rosé on the way home. Before dinner, cut up some summer fruit. So do this before you get to the full cooking. Cut up some fruit, some watermelon, some peaches, some cherries, some cantaloupe, some apples, whatever you've got. Put that in some small cups with a few chopped almonds, and currants, or dried cranberries scattered over top. Sit down on the patio with that and your lover and the bottle of rosé. Perfect. So long from the wine beat, this is Craig. <laughs>